Welcome back to Superhero Ethics. This week, I'm joined by special guest Jared Silva as we're discussing what does it mean to approach media, especially genre media, as a parent. We're going to be talking about how do you decide what is or isn't appropriate? How do you talk to your kids about the messages that are being shown? And what are we looking for in films and media in terms of what is appropriate? All this and more right after this commercial message we have no control over. Welcome again, everyone. I'm your host, Matthew Westfox. Joining me is Jared today. Jared, how are we doing? How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm glad you could uh, be a part of this today. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and you've been... Um, um, I, I first heard you, I think, because you've been on the JudgeCast podcast, right? I have a few times. Cool, cool. Well, yeah, um, Jared and I had met a couple times. <clears throat> uh, There's at least one event I remember that uh, uh, I was uh, working as a judge at an event that... Um, Jared helped to run. He's uh, uh, what's your what's your exact title with Star City Games? I'm the organized play manager for Star City Games. Right, and so there was a, a big tournament. I was working at it. Jared was helping to run it. Um, and he and I got so deep into a conversation about Star Wars that someone else had to keep shooing him back onto the floor. Uh, so I knew that we had a lot to talk about. So uh, hopefully this is gonna be the first of a couple times you're on. Um, and and today I picked this topic because I I remember when you and I spoke. You had a lot of strong opinions and, and a lot of really great perspective about, um, you know, how it's changed your views on media to be a parent and thinking about the kind of stuff you do and don't watch with your kids and how you watch it. Um, and that just seemed like such a great topic right now when I'm sure I'm mean, already a big part of a parent's life. But now that kids are home in most places around the around the country and around the world, people are having a lot more screen time for their kids. And there's a lot more questions about um, what 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 should my kids watch? What shouldn't my kids watch? And how do I talk to my kids about the stuff that they watch? So I think it's a really good time for this topic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't think anyone's ever accused me of not having strong opinions <laughs> about pretty much anything. Uh, but yeah, uh, I have two daughters, um, Aurelia's age six and Liliana's age eight. Cool. And uh, so I've been kind of moving through media with them and uh, seeing stuff that they want to watch trying to introduce some stuff that I'm interested in as well and kind of share things that I liked as a kid. Nice. Uh, and that really gets you to re-examine, you know, what did I like about this? What's important here? And, you know, are there things that I didn't recognize as a kid that I now have concerns about uh, yeah. as, as the person who's kind of overseeing the media that they consume? That actually is a great way to jump into one of the first things I wanted to ask, which is how has being a parent changed how you view media? Like, do you really feel like there's, um, when you watch something not with your kids, but are, are there differences in how you're approaching things and what you're noticing and what you're not noticing and stuff like that? So uh, there's kind of different categories that you look at and that you kind of build up thresholds for as to what you are, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with, you know, things that maybe you are particularly concerned with, uh, or that you look for, mm. um, those can run anywhere from, you know, the simple ones, uh, you know, sex, violence, language. Those are things that are very generally kind of rolled into the types of ratings that you'll see anywhere from the TV ratings to movie ratings. Um, and kind of figuring out which of those are important to you, which of those are less important to you are, is, is really, really important. And then there's also stuff like, representation, gender roles, mm -hmm. and kind of the modeling of behavior that you 
would like to instill in your kids. You want them to look up to characters that you feel are worthy of being looked up to. Right. And whatever media they're watching, they're going to find characters to latch onto and characters that they really enjoy Mm -hmm. and finding ways to give them opportunities to, uh, to find those role models that align with values that you are hoping that they kind of assimilate and make part of themselves. That's, that's really important. Do you find, are you able to kind of switch that on and off? Like when you sit down to watch something R rated or something clearly not the kids are going to see for a while, are you able to just kind of turn off that parent mode and just enjoy something like a a game of Thrones or a Deadpool? Or is there always, is some of that always in the back of your mind where you're thinking about like uh, approaching the media, whatever it is through those kind of lenses? So the lens doesn't go away. I mean, I can enjoy things that are definitely not okay for my kids. Uh-huh. Uh, I definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I really enjoy Deadpool, always have from uh, way back in college. Uh-huh. Um, I watched all the way through Game of Thrones. And, and you know, it changes one of, the, one of the things that you're thinking about, though, which is, you know, when is it appropriate to share this with my kids? This mm-hmm. is something that I really love, that I think is great that I think is really well-crafted media, what are the things that are holding me back from sharing it with somebody that I care about and love and want to share those experiences with? And when do those things shift? Yeah. Uh, and so a silly one that I've thought about a lot that I haven't figured out my answer for is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, that's a good one. Like it's, I would like to be the person who introduces them to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Cause I think that it is, hilarious i think that it is funny but it is also very problematic Mm uh and exceptionally crude and so in order for them to kind of understand and appreciate it there needs to be a level of maturity to get past the fart jokes right and kind of see the other pieces of it and and what is you know what is more deeply funny about it um but I don't want it to be somebody who they're over at a friend's house and they watch that and then I don't get to share it with them the first time. Yeah. You know, it was, it was really important to me to be the first person who watched star Wars with them. Mm. You know, that's, that was an experience that I wanted to have with them, you know, focused on the, on the media and, you know, but Monty Python, something I haven't shown them yet. I, think it's probably somewhere in the like 11 12 13 range right but i haven't i haven't hit the point where i'm like okay you know what this type of crude humor is something <laughs> that i am comfortable with them engaging with and i'm i trust them to engage with in a way that is mature and not going to be oh okay so i can tell all these spark jokes now yeah um and so Figuring out as I'm watching adult media, for lack of a better term, if it's something that I think is great, you know, when do I get to share it with them? What do I need to see to feel comfortable sharing it with them? Are there pieces of it that I can share with them? Right. What? Um, and I like the way you're framing it there because it sounds like, especially with things that are problematic. And I know this. This I think this is one of the first things we talked about um, when we got first got into this topic. Your approach isn't to say, I don't want my kids to see problematic things. It, it, t- tell me if this is accurate. Because what it sounds like is you're saying, it's not that you don't want kids to see unproblematic things. It's that you don't want to see them uncritically. 
that you want to be that you want to be there to help them discuss it and to talk about what is great about this, but maybe what isn't so great or what are, what are different approaches to it. Is, is that is that a fair way of talking about it? I I think so. So my I believe that problematic content is going to be put in front of my kids on a regular basis for the rest of their life. I yeah. think that it's already put in front of the kids with all kinds of of kids TV shows. There's a bunch of stuff that I'm not crazy about that is uh, something that is just not sending great messages. I, we're going to talk about the princess problem later on, and that is not necessarily bad, but there are pieces of it that you want to engage about and talk about, and how do you how do you approach it in a way that doesn't gloss over the fact that there are problems with how these are these characters that are presented as your main protagonists right. are handled. Um, and so I want to curate the content that they see. Mm. And I want to offer them the opportunity to engage me about anything that they have questions about. And I also want to actively engage them when there's something that I feel is either very positive or very negative because I want to draw their attention to the things that are admirable in characters. I want to draw attention to uh, how diverse a cast is. I want to draw attention to how different characters are treated, whether that's well or poorly right? and whether or not they would act differently. What would you do here? You know, this character got into a situation where they had the opportunity to help someone or to hurt someone and what did they choose to do and so talking about characters and the choices that they make gives them an opportunity to engage about who they want to be and how they want to act and if they get into a situation like that where they've seen it happen on screen before and they've talked about what they would do then it makes it easier for them to react to that situation in a way that they want to yeah, and that that makes a lot of sense to me. I um our listeners uh many have heard them mention this before, so I'd be brief about it, but I my love of science fiction comes from the fact that when I was, you know, maybe like 10, 11, 12, my mother sat me down to watch uh Star Trek the original series. Um I'm pretty old, so this is before TNG or anything came out. <laughs> but the point was she wanted to watch it with me, and after every episode, we would talk about it. Like, you know, we watched the episodes that were clearly allegories for race, and then we'd have a discussion about, you know, and, and without her, like, you know, moralizing, but she would, like, you know, help me see, like, how is this about racism in our own world? Um, and that's actually th – those conversations were really the seed of what this podcast became, the idea of how is it that our media that's often about worlds that are completely different from our own can still hold up a mirror and help us learn about that. So I love what you're talking about in terms of as the parent, um, you know – using that media in exactly the kind of way that my mom did than I think a lot of our parents did. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering also, because one thing I've heard from other parents, and it may be that your kids are not quite at this age yet, but um, one thing I think is really interesting is when, obviously the conversation is a lot, you know, you helping them to see, but uh, I'm wondering if you've had moments or, or you're kind of anticipating there'll be moments when, when you know, in the way with all kids will happen, that, that, that learning starts to go both ways as well, where that they're seeing something in the media that you haven't seen. Um uh, have, have you had any of those moments yet or, or kind of uh, keeping them um, just sort of seeing that those are probably going to happen as the kids get older? 
Well, I definitely am, am looking for those, and they definitely see things that I don't. Mm. And inviting them to have insights that go beyond what you're giving them mm. is exceptionally important. You, know, you want to give them the ownership of what they're seeing in a way that can't happen if it's a lecture from you at the end of the at the end of the show, it's got to be a conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, a lot of times uh, I'll look to judging right here because that's where a lot of my, my teaching experience comes. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm very heavily, uh, I quite often use the Socratic method where I try to pull the answer that I'm trying to get them to see out of them right. rather than pushing the information to them. Mm. And so, I think that it's really important to open with questions yeah. and to ask them about, you know, what, you know, what character did you think was, you know, the person that you would like to be like, and what about them really, you know, is something that you admire, you know, were there characters that acted in a way that you don't want to act? Mm. Okay. Were there characters that you liked that sometimes did something that was not good? Right. When they did that, you know, how did you feel? And, you know, engaging them in, in a way where they're not trying to receive a ton of information. They're actually generating the information, but guiding what they generate. Oh, that's great. Well, and so uh, we, we've kind of touched on it, but just kind of like to, to frame a little more. Um, what, what, are, uh, what are kind of some of the specific things that you're looking for? And what are the things that, that specifically will kind of concern you and make you think either maybe either A, I don't want to show this to my kids yet, or B, this especially, I want, I want, um, the, I want the kid to be able to watch with me because I, I, I'd be concerned about some of the messages it might give. What are, can you give us kind of some general examples about what's either the, sure. the positive or the negative you're looking at? So for for me, uh, one of the things that I think I'm I'm off from some people on is I'm actually not particularly concerned about uh, I, I guess I'll call it comic book violence, mm -hmm. um, where you know there's fighting there's you know, things are getting blasted, you know, it happens in sci-fi, it happens in comic book movies, it happens in a lot of PG to PG-13 content where there's fights and conflict, um, but it kind of, it doesn't necessarily lack blood completely, but it lacks gore. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think that my kids are at a point where they should be seeing, uh, gory violence or realistic violence. I'm not going to show them saving private Ryan yet, <laughs> but you know, at some point I want them to see that because it is a spectacular movie and it is one of the best depictions of world war two in terms of a realistic depiction that is out there. And that's an important thing I think to understand because it's really easy and in our current society to be disconnected from what it looks like when there is a conflict and there is a war right? and to talk about it as if it happened somewhere else to someone else and doesn't have a grotesque human impact. Yeah. And good. Sorry. No, uh, go ahead. I, I, yeah. I was going to say, I love that example. Cause I remember when I, when that first movie came out, how shocking it was because until then world war two movies were about a good war. So it was glorious and clean and pretty. Whereas Vietnam movies were about war is bad 
And so the warfare was gruesome and gory. And Saving yeah, Private had... Ryan was the first time I saw a war that is, you know, for most people, I think for good reason, generally accepted as a, a much more noble cause than Vietnam was, um, still portrayed as ugly. And um, to me, the, the best example I think of that in, our, in, our, in, in the media we're talking about today is more genre stuff. Um, have you seen the movie Logan? I have, yes. I, I love Logan because, you know, I'm often troubled when I see the more PG type things where, like, you know, a Captain America is, you know, killing bad guys left and right, but you're not seeing any of the actual true cost of violence. You're seeing that violence looks kind of, you know, pretty and romanticized, whereas something like Logan, you're seeing that violence in, you know, even for the best of reasons, looks horrible and, and upsetting. But obviously, of course, mm-hmm. on the flip side, like you show Logan to a kid, I imagine you're going to get 10 years of a therapist getting very well paid. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so, yeah, I think that that's got to be a really interesting discussion of like, on the one hand, like, how do you how do you let kids see violence that is more appropriate for their age while also not gutting it so far that it's the idea of like, oh, yeah, violence isn't that bad a thing because it's because it's portrayed as so like, you know, light and there's no blood, there's no muss. It's just, you know. One good punch, someone's out, and, and everything's okay. Yeah, and you know, as you were talking about, Vietnam movies have really dug into some of the horrors of war more deeply. You know, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, um, but there is uh, some very good media around World War II. Uh, obviously, Saving Private Ryan, and I'm going to kind of push back on that first thirty minutes being dark or trying to present it in a, a, a gory way. I think it's graphic mm. and it, it, but it, it's uncompromising and it tries to show you what was actually happening. Right. I, I think that it is, it is dark because war is dark. And yeah. because when you have two groups of people with the machinery of war on either side fighting each other, that is, it's terrifying mm-hmm. and it should be uh, another piece of media around that is band of brothers yeah. uh, and the Pacific. And both of those are series on HBO that I have, I love and I've watched band of brothers probably five times. Mm, okay. Um, and so, but again, there's a lot of graphic depiction of violence. There are characters who are put in morally ambiguous situations yeah. and, there's a lot of stuff, including the Holocaust, mm-hmm. that is is put on screen that is going to require a lot of discussion and maturity to be able to process. Yeah. And so, great, wonderful. I'd recommend it to anybody who is uh, who's listening to this podcast as a parent. I think that it is a a really well done series that is gives a a very realistic view of what it was like to be on the front lines in in world war ii but that's something that you've got to get to a point where the kids want to know about world war ii and are mature enough to handle some of the realities of it yeah i I remember a lot of similar discussions happened i i was in high school when the movie schindler's list came out um, mm-hmm. and I remember especially, um, uh, my, my father's Jewish and I, I went to, I, I went to high school with, with a very strong, Jew, uh, very large Jewish population in the school. And I remember a lot of my friends talking about how, like they were allowed to go see the movie, but their, their little siblings weren't. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I remember listening to parents talking about it, that it was a real dilemma because on the one hand, like 
this was one of the most accurate portrayals of this incredibly important historical event for, for any community, but especially for the Jewish community. But also, and, and part of what made it good was that it was not sanitized in any way, shape, or form. And so on the one hand, there's a sense of like, this is so important for kids to see. But that there were also stories of like, you know, parents taking their six-year-olds, their eight-year-olds, which and it'd be incredibly traumatizing for many at that age. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, and go ahead. It's it's such an important piece of history to not forget. Yeah, that it is it is easy as a parent to want to protect your children from that and to want to uh, say, well, you'll under you'll you'll know when you're older or you'll like. But it's really our responsibility to identify when that older is, yeah. when that point is where content is no longer about keeping you safe, mm-hmm. but is about challenging you and is about um, creating opportunities for you to learn and grow at, in a way that doesn't require kind of walls around you to to protect you from content that's going to disturb you. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, and especially I like the way you're talking about about it being so much about where the particular person is, because I think, um, and again, I, I am not a parent. I'm someone who's done a lot of teaching uh, of of children, but I'm not a parent myself. Um, and and I always, but I always thought like I I um I was involved in sexual education teaching for a long time, and and one of the things that we talked about there a lot, and I'm I'm kind of hearing you you saying as well, is that the idea of being able to say like. Every 12-year-old forever is not ready for this particular thing, but every 13-year-old is ready for it. Like that, that that's ridiculous. Like that No, absolutely not. It's it's very specific to the to the child. Uh-huh. And so one of the things that has been fairly good for me is that Aurelia's consumption of media is actually I would say advanced in terms of what she's comfortable with uh to to Liliana and Aurelia that's is the not older, say, the younger one. Aurelia is the younger. Okay. And so that's not to say that Liliana is not mature and is not able to to handle things. I think they both are, but Aurelia is not perturbed or put off by by things that you know a couple of years earlier Liliana was. Mm. And so they they've actually been able to be fairly lined up in the media that they are comfortable with. Yeah. And so I haven't felt like I'm holding Liliana back much to protect uh, Aurelia yeah. and to kind of align things to where she is. Um, one of the places that that does happen is um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the types of, of media now is, is with educational media. Yeah. Because let me just you know, frame that for a second. Let me just say that um, you know, so far, mostly what we've been talking about is, how your kids watch stuff that is that is kid friendly, maybe or maybe not, but is made for adults. But yeah, let's. I know one of the things we wanted to talk about was the media that is specific for kids, uh, and you did a great job of kind of breaking it down into a couple different categories. So let's let's use this to kind of shift into that and talk about um, as you're about to start the the educational as, a, as like one of those four categories. Yeah. So Liliana obviously is two years ahead of of Aurelia, and so you know she's in second grade. Liliana Aurelia is in kindergarten. And so the, you know, math skills and reading skills and all of those that they have developed are, they're two years apart, yeah. <laughs> unsurprisingly. And so uh, when they're looking at uh, what I call educational kids media, you know, stuff like Peg Plus Cat or Word Girl or Odd Squad, 
super readers. Uh, it's stuff where you see actual math problems up on the screen or, you know, the word of the episode um, talks about terminology. And if a lot of times it focuses on problem solving, yep. um, you'll see it usually use a contrived issue that then breaks down into a math or a language problem. You know, so Peg and Cat have to host a pizza party and divide the pizza into a number of different slices to figure for their party guests. Right. And so it it is very kind of basic and focused on okay, in this in this episode you you do these math problems. In this episode we're going to talk about at words. Mm. Um and so it's really kind of bottle episodes where it doesn't matter. There's no long term story really. You have characters that you know, but it is, um, but it is focused on learning specific skills right. along the way. Uh, and you'll see a lot of this on PBS Kids. Uh, and then also, you know, there's YouTube channels and other learning platforms that have this type of uh, style of of kids media. Um, and so with those, you know, whereas content wise, Aurelia and Liliana are fairly aligned in terms of their reading levels and their, their math levels, Liliana's obviously ahead. Right. And so if Liliana is doing something, it might be beyond, uh, if it's, if it's appropriate for Liliana, it might be beyond what Aurelia can do right now. If it's appropriate for Aurelia, then it's very easy for Lillian. Right. And so that's something where, you know, they have kind of split a little bit yeah. in terms of the things that they are interested in watching. I can see that. Yeah, I, I imagine also that as they get older and as they both develop, you know, even though, although their educational levels might be more similar that you may well get to, you know, you know, one of them is going to become more interested in sci-fi than the other or, or any of those kind of mm -hmm. things. And I'm sure that becomes also the questions that get up there. Um, while we're on that topic, do you want to just kind of run through the um, the three other, um, or sorry, the, the two other categories of um, uh, kids media specifically, and we'll just kind of uh, talk about them for a few moments, just to kind of frame the rest of our discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So um, these are three categories that I came up with. I'm not leaning on other people, and I'm sure that there are going to be uh, people who would debate these, uh, and they definitely cross over a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so... The second one that I, I lay out is uh, what I call moralistic or behavior modeling. Yep. And that's a PJ Masks, Doc McStuffins, Daniel Tiger, uh, My Little Pony does this, Arthur, Paw Patrol. And a lot of it is based on kind of learning moral behavior in life lessons. And you usually see a character that has a problem at the start of the episode that they'll solve by exhibiting some desirable trait that they lacked at the beginning of the episode. Right. So PJ masks cat boys trying to do everything on his own and needs to learn to work with his teammates to defeat the villain. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these are uh, kind of two part episodes where there'll be basically like a 10 minute first half and a 10 minute second half. They're very uh, cookie cutter. And uh, you also see, uh, this is where a lot of the, uh, consumerism, you know, the Paw Patrol, the PJ Masks, there's going to be toys for these things. It, you know, they show, toys show up around everything, but the very 
media driven toy driven shows are very often fall into this moralistic behavior modeling uh idea um they're easy to view out of order because the lesson of the show is pretty much self-contained uh and they're kind of like sitcoms where the characters are consistent and episode to episode you basically come back to the same starting point right um and you can jump in wherever you want to jump in and, uh the last go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> uh, i was gonna say the last one that that i have is story driven uh and for this the dragon prince avatar the last airbender harry potter and they focus on an ongoing story where characters learn and evolve along the way. And, you know, in this episode, the story continues, our heroes journey further from home, face new dangers and learn more about themselves. And, you know, it's important to watch those in order. And nowadays we have the gift of having entire series up on Netflix, Hulu, Disney plus. Uh, and, I remember as a kid trying to watch uh, a show that I really enjoyed Exo squad mm. and had to like cobble together, trying to, yeah. <laughs> to find when to watch the different episodes. And it was, you know, it was something where we had to walk up story... hill in the snow to find all the right episodes that we wanted. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just missed them. Yeah. And if you missed it, you just missed it and you didn't know what happened last, last week. <laughs> but, um, Go ahead. But this is basically kind of prestige series for kids. Yeah. Um, you know, if you miss an episode of as an as a grown up, you miss an episode of Game of Thrones, you're kind of in the weeds, uh, and you can f find yourself in the same situation uh, if you're missing if you're not watching these in order. But luckily, it's very easy to do that now with the uh, the way that we consume media. Yeah, those last ones especially seem interesting to me because. Um, let me ask you this: Did you watch the Muppet Show as a kid? A bit, yeah. So the Muppet Show is, and again, I'm not a parent, but is one of my favorite examples of one of the best kinds of kids' media because I watched it when I was six, seven, eight, and I loved it. And I never really understood mm -hmm. why my parents, it was always one of their favorite things for me to watch as a kid. And then later <laughs> I went back and watched it as an adult and realized there were so many jokes that six-year-old me, of course, totally missed. You know, when Kermit yeah. the Frog is a Howard Cosell stand-in, Six-year-old me had no idea what was going on. I just thought it was funny. And then I could watch it 25 and be like, oh, there's a whole other layer I'm seeing this on. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that last level, the ones you mentioned, were interesting because things like Avatar, Harry Potter, The Dragon Prince, all of those are ones I, as a non-parent, have watched just with other adults and really loved. Um, and I've always Absolutely. thought there's something really brilliant about a show that can be both very accessible to kids but not kind of eye-rolly for parents. Yep. Um, and I think a lot of the shows that you're going to find that y you as a parent enjoy are going to fall into that story-driven category. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have educational components or behavior modeling components, but um, you, at, as an adult, watching media, consuming media, one of the big things that has grown and grown and grown is that we're going to have a story where over time you're going to have characters that you invest in and learn about and, you know, you follow for an extended period of time. And so those story driven, and I think I haven't watched as much My Little Pony, but I believe My Little Pony actually does this to some degree as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
I dropped it into the moralistic behavior modeling because the way that I've engaged with it is every once in a while I'm <laughs> I'm there when they're watching an episode, um, and it fits that kind of bottle. Pony has a problem. Pony fixes something about themselves. Pony solves problem. Right. Uh, and but I believe there's also more of an kind of long arc as well. Right. Well, and, and so that also is a good point. So it sounds like a lot of the things on this list, maybe not the story-driven ones, but a lot of the others are ones where you're happy to watch with your kids, but you're also happy that it's something where like when you need to focus on something else and the kids are sitting down in front of something, those are ones that you're more happy if if, if they're – you don't have to be watching it with them? So for, for me, um, we just finished Avatar The Last Airbender recently and we've moved on to uh, – Legend of Korra, mm-hmm. and Avatar was something that we only watched when uh, we were all together, and we sat down and we watched it. Yeah, and so that's different from oh, okay, something you know you can watch something. Okay, you're watching a Daniel Tiger, or you're watching you know a Peg Plus Cat, or something along those lines. Like I might be in and out of the room. You know, I, I might enjoy the way that they're handling things, uh, but it's not something that I need to watch. Right. Um, with Avatar, it was something that I wanted to watch from start to finish with them. And that's just, that's not there for the other shows. Right. Because if you miss it, it doesn't matter. You just jump back in wherever you happen to be kind of dipping back in. And, I, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think what I'm hearing is, and I think it's a really important point, is that for you as a parent, part of you wants to watch these things with your kids because you feel like that's important to help kids get the, the messages that they're going to get. But also just part of the joy of being a parent is showing your kids the media you love and getting to experience it through them. Is that accurate? That it's not just about what's best for them, but also you as a parent, the things that you love? Yes, it's definitely something that I enjoy. So like I I enjoyed watching The Last Airbender. You know, I I enjoy Harry Potter. And I I actually have been lucky enough that we caught Dragon Prince as it was starting. Mm. And so we've been able to watch that all together through. And it was you know, the first time that I was seeing it and I've been exceptionally impressed with that series. I think that it's really one of the best things that's, that's going, uh, as a, I'll call it young adult, uh, series. Okay. Cool. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely understand that. Dragon Prince is one I've had trouble getting into, but I've heard that the second and third seasons are a lot better. Um, and certainly last airbender was one where, um, I, I, I remember actually our, our mutual friend, Jacob Malicic was the, the person who really turned me on to, um, wanting to watch that. Um, and I, I really struggled with it because I thought it was a kid's show. Um, I'm someone who in general has had real problems with animated TV shows. Um, and I remember being very blown away that yes, it was a kid's show and yes, it was something that, that is generally not something I love, but still the story and the acting and the writing was all very good and, and also, just it, it it drew me into the story in a way that I could see people of all. I don't know. Avatar didn't feel like a kids show. It felt like a family show, if that makes sense. Where it wasn't just aimed at kids, but it was very kid friendly. Absolutely, and it also was a show that paid you off for investing time in it. Yes, uh, the character arcs are really impressive, and are I think very realistic. There are a number of different characters who kind of move around the board and who you have very different impressions of early on. 
than you have later in the show and especially as you get to the denouement and you you're paid off for having paid attention along the way and watch their journey and that's something that you don't usually see in in children's media that makes a lot of sense and i i have one last question on the on the educational stuff before i move into the next topic and that's um are there, are there examples of stuff that is clearly meant for kids and is kid-level appropriate, but where still you've decided as a parent, this is not what I want my kids seeing, either because maybe it's a little too simplistic or because it's, um, you know, uh, approaching things that where, where you're not comfortable with or um, not in terms of content, but in terms of the message being something that you're not quite like, you know, it's a little more of a conservative bent or, or something like that. Are there, are there examples of stuff that you've looked at and been like, yeah, this is not what I want my kids seeing? I haven't had a lot of those experiences with educational. I think you find those more with the moralistic kind of behavior modeling shows. Yep. And that's because that's very much they're making a determination about what is moral or or good behavior to model. Yeah. And if you disagree with those things, uh, then that can be problematic. The other piece of that is, as I mentioned, they're usually very consumeristic and very here's these characters that you're going to want to buy toys of. Mm, and yeah. so I've stayed away from Paw Patrol and PJ masks a little bit. And, you know, it's not something that I don't let them watch at all, but I try to minimize uh, those types of, of shows um, and, and push them more towards either the educational or you know, more of the crossover shows where, yeah, it's behavior modeling, but it's also, um, you're also learning more or it's more story driven, right. um, pushing away from the really kind of popcorny, here's your little tiny digestible commercial. Right. No, I, I can definitely see that. Well, and so based on that, let's kind of transition into more of the, um, more family friendly or kind of more all ages stuff rather than kid specific, uh, talking about, and, Let's start with um, the stuff that you love. And I, um, I, I we're going to talk about different franchises in a moment, but I actually want to uh, start with kind of a general question. And maybe mm-hmm. you haven't had to deal with this or maybe you have. What happens when you're really excited for your kids to see something that you love and it's just not their thing? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always disappointing. And <laughs> it, it definitely it definitely does happen. Yeah. Uh, but uh, ideally it's important to you and you care about it and that's independent of what other people think and you want to share it. And, and so it's important to give that opportunity for them to enjoy it as well. But you also have to recognize that, you know, what they like may not be what you like and they may not be into the same things. Now, a lot of, um, a lot of things, there will be crossover because there's just some things where there's really general appeal and, you may not like it for the same reasons. You like it for different things. You have different characters that are your favorite and, and stuff like that. But, you know, Marvel for one is something where I think there's a lot for most people. Now, yeah, doesn't mean everyone's going to love it, but it's something where the MCU has done a really good job of creating a accessible content that has kind of hooks for a, a bunch of different types of, of, people who watch media mm-hmm. um and my kids have seen the entire mcu so far 
and that means that we get to, you know, there's a new movie coming out. You know, we'll we'll go out and we'll we'll have a day and see it at the theater and come and talk about it and, and all of that. And so I was a little bit concerned as we got to um to to end game and to Infinity War mm-hmm. as they were kind of tackling some heavier content and got a little bit deeper into, you know, people dying and, you know, the good guys losing yeah, uh, in a way that really hadn't been a big part of the MCU at that, at, at, to that point. And so there's a lot of big questions there and a lot of things to, to talk about. Um, but it was such a payoff for having watched everything else that, I felt like it was still something that they were they were ready for and that they were interested in seeing. Right. Um, and so it was something we went to see. It was something that we talked about afterwards and, you know, asked questions and all of that. And so it was it, it worked out very well. That's awesome. So, so can you give an example of uh, maybe a franchise or a, something that was beloved to you that that they just haven't loved yet or or, um, or that they at first maybe didn't love? So they're hit or miss on Star Wars media. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't pieces that they do love. They were really into Force Awakens. Uh Um, They were... I haven't shown them the prequels. They, in fact, do not know that they exist. And they probably will find out because they want to listen to this podcast. So, (laughs) hi, guys. There are prequels. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) And... But they haven't been as into the original trilogy. And I think part of that is just the production value of the original trilogy, while amazing for its time, doesn't quite live up to the modern movies. And you know, being very, very slow compared to the movies we see today. And I I love that. But yeah, even just friends of mine who are 15 years younger than me, but as adults, find it very slow to watch. And I, I can understand that definitely for kids. And so they like the characters. We've read books and they've enjoyed that. Um, we watched the Clone Wars series and Rebels. And so there's been a lot of Star Wars media that they have liked. They haven't liked all of it. Um, other than that, uh, I share, I recently shared the, uh, the X-Men TV show. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> Yellow Spandex. Uh, yep. Sorry, everybody. That's in your head now. <laughs> uh, and you know, one of them really liked it, and the other per- the other one was more kind of take your leave. Yeah, that's fair. Have you um, found um, is there stuff that you you remember loving as a kid that now also watching it with your kids you start to like that, that you start to remember problematic stuff that you missed? Um, let, let me give you an example. Um, the original Ghost, like I am right of the age that the the Bill Murray Dan Aykroyd Ghostbusters movie came out when I was like nine or ten. I loved that movie more than anything, and I, when the the new one came out, I was really excited to see the new one, and I did see it, and I really liked it. But it made me very nostalgic for that original movie, and I wanted to go back and watch it, and because I hadn't seen it probably in twenty five years, and I watched it with some friends, and I as I watched it, I was thinking, okay, this is hilariously funny. And oh my lord, this romantic plot, the Bill Murray romantic plot with Sigourney Weaver that I thought was, you know, charming and romantic is stalkerish and incredibly uncomfortable now. Um, 
and and I wasn't watching it with kids. I was watching it with other adults. But it was interesting to me to see how differently I saw the thing that I'd loved as a kid now that I know the things I know. Have you – do you kind of – if there's something that you loved 30 years ago, do you watch it first just to kind of check on that? Or are there things that as you're watching it with your kids that you find like, oh, I, for, I, I need to talk to them about this. I forgot about this part that's not as great as I would have remembered. Um, have you had those kind of moments? So uh, some of the Mel Brooks stuff I haven't gone I haven't gone to with them. Yeah. Um, but like Robin Hood Men in Tights or um, I'm I'm gonna blank now <laughs> or Spaceballs. Spaceballs, yep. Uh, and you know those are things where a lot of the jokes just they don't hit well. Yeah. Now and there's a lot of gay humor a, and things like that. Yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that. You know, if you think about it and you are are more concerned about other people rather than just your own perspective, then it's not as not as easy to to just chuckle about, you know, the fact that you've got a Druish princess. Yeah. Uh, and so there's there's some stuff that I, I know that I found hilarious. And we talked about Monty Python briefly, yeah. where. You know, it's just it's a different worldview when it was made in what 1970s, 1980s. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that doesn't mean that there's not value to it, but it probably means that there's more discussions to have. And and Mel Brooks actually seems like a, a really good example because that's I I actually watched that recently with with um, my partner who's from Minnesota who did not grow up in a, a Jewish community or a community with a lot of Jewish people in it the way I did and. Mel Brooks was something I watched with my Jewish family where there's a lot of humor that is when told by Jews and understood by Jews, you know, un- like it, 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 it's a kind of a self-referential humor that when mm-hmm. I watched it with someone who doesn't have those kind of context with can come across as ridiculously anti-Semitic, you know, like, like mm-hmm. the common, the, the Jewish princess. It's, um, and it's some a of good that, old, is, we can say that, but you can't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's some extent of that, but it's also just more the like, I think for me, having grown up in the context of Jewish humor all of my life, I could fit it into a context that is a lot harder if you don't have that context, you know? Yeah, and giving that context to somebody in the short discussion afterwards. Oh, it, it's funny because <laughs> that's that's not really something that you can do. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, Especially with kids. Blazing Saddles is a brilliant movie because it's satirizing racism. Yep. But unless you understand all that history to it, it's much hard. Yeah, it, it's really easy to understand. So, um, I, I, we're not going to be able to go through all of them. But g- give me an, uh, another example. Like you've got a, a couple of franchises I know that you really wanted to show with your kids. What's been one where um, uh, ha- have there been any where talking it to your talking about it with your kids or watching it has kind of changed your your feelings on it? Not in a bad or good way, but just where you've you've seen new things about it that you didn't see when you were watching it uh, just as a non parent. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely engaged with the new Star Wars movies as a parent, mm, um, yeah. and that's that's a very different way to in to kind of view media, and so I, I you can't cut that part of you out, yeah. and so you know my I, I'm really positive on Force Awakens, and a lot of that is because I feel like it's really accessible to kids. It's really, you know. It's upbeat. It's fast. It's it it has some of the themes that I I wanted out of Star Wars. It felt 
somewhat like the Star Wars that I knew, and it was, you know, the good versus evil plot. And, you know, I think I had I had issues with Last Jedi, but one of them that I had for the kids is I think that it was a bit challenging in terms of the ideas for the kids to to get into. There were parts of the movies that really worked, parts of the movie that really worked for them, but then there were also a lot of parts where it was either exceptionally slow or trying to talk about things that just weren't going to land for them. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for making Star Wars movies for adults. I think The Mandalorian is spectacular. Yeah. And, you know, there are some really challenging things, and I haven't shown the kids The Mandalorian, and I'm trying to figure out if that's something that I'm going to do. But there's a lot of heavier things in there that I'm really happy to have in a Star Wars media, but I'm not sure that I want to hand off to my kids right now. So, so um, right now, on a, one of my other podcast is specifically about the Star Wars universe, and it's it's been interesting because right now we're doing two parallel tracks, which is every other week I record with uh, my my friend and colleague Jeff Randall uh, about the um, the show The Mandalorian, and then on the off weeks I record uh, actually with you know your coworker uh, Riki Hayashi and and his wife Sarah about the Clone Wars, mm-hmm. um, and it's been fascinating because realizing like. They're both great Star Wars stories. I love them both for the same Star Wars reasons. But as you said, Mandalorian is probably one of the least kid-friendly things that Star Wars has put out. Um, whereas The Clone Wars is very aggressively a kid's show. And mm-hmm. I think at times is that kind of Avatar, Dragon Prince level of a kid's show but with a lot that adults can love. And then there's some episodes where we're just rolling our eyes because it's very, very much a kid's show. Once um, it found its footing... And uh, especially when it was handling more story-driven stuff rather than this is going to be a bottle episode that involves Jar Jar, yep. uh, it's, it, it has a ton of stuff for adults to pull out as well. Yeah. Um, but, and that's the Clone Wars. Um, for The Mandalorian, it, just, it doesn't have the veneer of a kid's show. Like, yeah. Clone Wars, I think, when it's at its best, is an adult show that is finished for kids and you know the development of ahsoka uh obi-wan's relationships um and the mandalorian backdrop is all you know pretty heavy stuff that is really well kind of finished in a way that lets kids watch it and enjoy it but has a bunch of stuff happening under the surface Uh, a lot of stuff with the clones as well yeah I mean, one thing that I I think was really important is, at least this was just for my own moral development, and I I, I hope for kids as well, again, not a parent, but the ability to move beyond very sort of binary understandings of good and evil towards seeing a lot more of that moral grayness. You know, you talked Mm -hmm. about Saving Private Ryan, where even in this most, like, you know, upright and, like, we're fighting the good fight kind of a war – there's still people who do morally ambiguous things because war is hell, no matter what the cause. And mm-hmm. Clone Wars, I feel like, is is a great example of that because, you know, it, it takes the the Star Wars universe where there's literally a light side and a dark side, and there's always been subtlety to it. But but when you start getting into stories about okay, this this proud clone army, what happens when a clone 
wants to just settle down and, and have a family and doesn't want to fight or what happens when, you know, a Jedi like, like Ahsoka is, um, you know, not, not quite sure where she fits in things. Um, trying to be careful not to spoil some later things in, 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 yeah. in the, in the plot of that show. But, um, what happens when a general treats the clone army like the droid army yeah. as if they're disposable, you know, exactly. and is, yeah. is that the moral thing to do if it's going to win the war? Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I, I think that's a great example. And, well, and so twisting around a bit, because um, I'm, I'm guessing this also goes more to the, you know, the parental tastes. Um, but I want to kind of put you on the spot there. So why haven't your kids seen the prequels? Because those are the clearly the most kid friendly of the, uh, or at least in, they're intended to be the most kid friendly of the movies. So that's that's largely about my judgment on the quality. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is I think that that the Anakin story is actually told significantly better through the Clone Wars. Very much uh, so, yeah. than it ever was through the the prequels. And so it it's basically been those were those were movies that I literally went to see in the theaters at midnight showings, wishing and hoping that they were going to be the extension of the Star Wars that I wished for for twenty years. Yeah. And they weren't, and so I'm sure that my disappointment in that theater in nineteen ninety <laughs> 19, whenever it was, yeah. um, has something to do with the fact that I've held those back. Yeah. Um, but I don't really want to watch them again. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not sure why I would ask somebody else to watch them. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring that up. Because I, I think, to me, one of the most important things we're talking about here is, yes, as a parent, you can watch these things because you're helping your kids learn and grow and, and that parental role but that, you know, you're still a person who gets to enjoy the things you like and not enjoy the things you don't like. And it's always important to me when I hear parents say like, yeah, maybe my kids would really love that. And I hope they get to watch it at some point. I hated watching it. It has a lot of bad memories for me. <laughs> I don't want to watch it myself. Yeah. And especially when it comes to stuff like, at least to me, like Star Wars and Marvel and, um, you know, a, a couple of others that, you know, I think about, we talked about Monty Python, Jurassic Park, Firefly. Uh-huh. Um those are things that I want to share with them. They're not things that I feel like that they're not coming to me. Now, if they right. came to me and said, Hey, I really want to see the prequels, we'd watch them. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But if I'm presenting something to them and saying, Hey, this is something that I really like that I really enjoy, then it's got to be something that I really like. I really enjoy. And the prequels don't fit that for me. Um, so, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I'm sure that um, they're starting now to get to the age where their friends are going to be watching a lot more things and they're going to have a lot more of like, hey, dad, this is the stuff we're watching. Can we watch it with you? Um, yep. ha- with, with any of the stuff you've mentioned already, has any of that been stuff that they came to you and said, we want to watch that? Or are they not quite at the age where that's happening yet? So uh, they know how to navigate Netflix. <laughs> and so they've, there's been a lot of shows that they've kind of landed on. Um, and, you know, a lot of that stuff it does fall into the kind of commercialism type stuff. Um, yep. But every once in a while um, there's, there's things that have kind of cut through that. Um, She-Ra is something that we've all watched together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see, they are, what are they big into right now? Fixies well, on YouTube. <laughs> Shira is another one that I think of where I've watched as an adult and thought there were so many great like adult friendly themes. Um, mm-hmm. What was what was your take on watching Shira with them? 
I've enjoyed it. Um, I think that it's been a bit simplistic for my taste if I was going to go go watch it. Uh-huh. Um, but there are a lot of pieces to it that I really enjoy. I think that one yeah. of the things that it does exceptionally well is that it doesn't have the the traditional all of the women look this way, all of the men look this way. Yeah, it has a lot more representation of more realistic body types, mm-hmm. and in characters that are powerful. So it's it's not just oh here's this side character that's you know not engaged or um, or powerful. And they have a different body type to right. kind of differentiate them. Like you have primary characters who don't look like Shira. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that that's a particularly really good example of it, especially because um, I, I remember when Shira first came out. You know, the person writing it made a very, and the person especially drawing it made a very conscious effort to continue to make Shira look gorgeous and 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 a a beautiful strong character but significantly desexualized from the original version and mm-hmm. it it might sound like we're talking about a, a cartoon that's clearly meant for like you know 6 to 12 year olds though it has a lot of values for everybody and so just saying the idea that it's desexualized sounds ridiculous until you remember that when it first came out when this new one came out there was a big backlash from you know adult men who had loved it as a child because of it, they saw it as very sexual. And um, those words creep me out just saying them. But like, but it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's to me, I, I remember thinking that it was, it, it, this must be so good for, for parents of, of, of young women, uh, of girls, uh, just because that idea of that there was such a conscious effort to say, how can we break the mold of, um, you know, what, what, what is, what is, what was so often presented as, to be a, you know, powerful woman as a role model for girls also meant to be, you know, in the tiny skirt and with the long flowing hair yeah. and, and all it, that. It meant to, to wear a chainmail bikini. Yeah. Um, let's talk – the one last of the franchises I want to uh, ask you about because I think it's it's the one that like just looking at your list most jumps out at me as um, – I'm curious about it for kids is Jurassic Park. Yeah. Since that's the one that is the most – not like that it gives, you know – messages that might sort of be a little bit you know challenging socially or politically but it's just downright scary um, yeah yeah how have you approached that one uh so the kids have not seen jurassic park um yep. they they like dinosaurs they're they're into dinosaurs a dinosaur train is another one on <laughs> they, that's in the uh educational yep uh groupings that they re- have really enjoyed at times um but yeah, Jurassic Park is heavily about, like, to put it simply, are they going to have nightmares after watching this? Yeah. And the, I think that it is such a good movie that I'm probably going to be more aggressive with it than, uh, <laughs> than, than I otherwise would be mm-hmm. because there are, you know, there are enjoyable movies or fun movies and stuff like that that I'm just, I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to take a chance with, yeah. but you know, I, I really think that Jurassic Park stands up now in terms of special effects, in terms of uh, story. And the other thing is what I, what I'll probably do here. And I've done this with Harry Potter is we'll read the book. Yeah. And you know, if they're interested after the book and they want to see the movie, then that's a good segue and you kind of can take it from there. 
Uh, and so that's, that's one of the big things with, with franchises where there's written material and media is I, I try to start with the book. We, I've done that with Harry Potter and, you know, we'll, we can watch a movie once we've finished reading the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- that, that makes a lot of sense, especially because it's, it's so much less visual as a book. And part of why I'd ask about Jurassic Park is it, A, I totally agree with you. The effects stand up, which means it is like, I, I think that there's some horror movies that I loved as a 12 year old in the eighties that if you watched today, <laughs> you sort of think like, I don't know how anyone could be scared of this because it looks just so ridiculous. But Jurassic Park, it still looks terrifying. Yeah. But what I always thought was interesting is it is a very scary movie where two of the main characters are young kids who kids mm-hmm. would very easily be able to identify with. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so it always seemed like an interesting thing of like, you know, I, I think a lot of people who are the age of one of the major protagonists probably shouldn't watch this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I that's one where I haven't I haven't made it there yet. I, I if I was going to guess, I would guess that it's probably another year and a half, two years away. Yeah, like in that eight to ten range. Uh, and I think, as I as I mentioned earlier, Aurelia kind of is a little bit more advanced in what she is, enjo- which she enjoys watching. Right. And I assume, especially because they're close enough in age that like there's just no ability to have the like you know you can watch this, but your younger sister can't. Like at this point, if you're picking something for them to watch, you're watching it with both of them. Yeah, and as I said, I'm pretty lucky that the the younger one is the one who is kind of more into that more advanced uh, content. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, last kind of question on that, and then let's start to talk to some of the, the problems we tackle. Um, mm-hmm. And again, like I, my mother's probably, uh, uh, she was a little more on the extreme side about how she chose some of these things, but she was someone who had very strong opinions about what was or wasn't appropriate for kids, especially in terms of like in her mind, like, you know, the human body, seeing the human body in a naked form. And like, you know, to her, that was a natural thing that kids should not, she, you know, she, she had a lot of feelings about the, uh, what she saw as the kind of repression of a lot of our society, but mm-hmm. she was very, very anti-violence. And so she yeah. never wanted me to see the violent stuff. And I remember she often had a lot of conflict with, uh, the parents of other, of my peers who were very comfortable taking me to, you know, the, the, uh, shoot, what she referred to as a shoot 'em up movies, Yep. But would be horrified if one of you know my friends had seen something where like you know uh, a naked body part was on screen. Oh, oh no, a sex scene! I know, and, <laughs> and I'm kind of wondering how do you navigate that in terms of, and maybe like I didn't grow up in the internet your age, your kids are, but but are you ever thinking in terms of not just what are you exposing them to for their own development, but what are they going to be talking to about with their peers in school, and are you going to get mm-hmm. the angry phone call from a parent saying you know? Your your daughter told my daughter all about this thing that I don't want her watching. Like, is that is that at all on your radar screen, or are you able to be kind of free of that kind of thing? Yeah, I can deal with other parents if necessary. Um, <laughs> Any time that I would be engaged with another kid in terms of media, then I'm going to be more conservative. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to push the boundaries when someone's over for a sleepover or something along those lines. Uh, and I kind of expect other parents to do the same. But I also am not as worried. Um, I, I think realistically, we, I'm in a position where my kids' content uh, that they're consuming is probably advanced for their age. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've I've definitely thought about okay, I'd like 
you know, we were talking about Monty Python. I'd like to be the person who shows them. Right. And so that probably means that I'm going to be a bit more aggressive than, than some other parents. And I'm not as worried about, Oh, you know, I saw this thing and it was really funny and you should, you should try to see it. If another kid goes home and says, Oh, you know, Liliana told me all about star Wars or about infinity war. And I'd really like to see it. Like at that point, that's a discussion between them and, and their parent. Right. And I expect the other parents to be able to deal with that. Um, and to say no, if they don't think that it's appropriate or yeah. to say yes and, you know, curate that experience as they need to. Um, Cause that's, that's my expectation of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that makes sense, especially because, you know, kids today are growing up in a world where the, the access that a kid has directly to media is just miles beyond what was available when I it's was a unreal. kid. I'm sure what you were a kid. You know, if my parents didn't want me to watch violent stuff, like I didn't have an internet, I could go on and go find it on my own, you know, in the way that kids, yep. like, as you said, your kids understand how to, how to uh, use Netflix. And that already yep. opens up so many doors that, that I never had as a kid. Absolutely. So let's let's talk uh, about some of the kind of problems uh, in media and how you kind of deal with that. Um, sure. Uh, and and I know the first thing you you had mentioned was what what you referred to as the PG thirteen question. You want to kind of talk yeah. a little bit more about this and. Uh... Yeah. So the PG thirteen question, as I as I call it, is basically you have a lot of ratings out there that come from other people, and so they're also very broad ratings that take into account things that you may or may not agree with. Yep. And so let's just talk about PG-13 for a minute because you've got G and PG, which are very generally accepted as good for kids. And then you've got R, which is very generally accepted as for adults. Right. Um, and so on those ratings, the major pieces that they take into account are violence, language, drug and substance abuse, and nudity and sexual conduct. Right. And so violence uh, depictions of violence are permitted under all ratings, but must be moderated for lower ones. So G-rated violence is kept to a minimum. PG, the violence can't be intense. PG-13, intense violence permitted. And then R is where you get into realistic, extreme, or persistent. That's where you get into gore um, or, you know, that's where you get into, um, I think Saving Private Ryan has got to be R. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. Um, but, you know, for much of that movie, it's definitely not. But then for that first half hour, it definitely is. Um, language is depiction. Uh, so means that, you know, it may not be polite at G, but no stronger words are present. Right. At PG, there is some profanity permitted, but no sexually derived cursing. So you can say damn or hell or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't get into more harsh language. Right. Uh, PG-13, it's limited uh, and justifiable cursing and harsh language is permitted. So that gets into some really gray areas as to what's going to be okay. Um, they talk about uh, there being one F-bomb allowed. Uh, and so basically where you want to land that is something that people people talk about in, in different movies, but it's not actually that line. And yeah. then... For R, if you have excessive cursing and crude language, that's where that lands. Um, drugs and substance abuse. Uh, drug use is generally limited to PG-13 and above. 
but you will see smoking and alcohol in G and PG movies. Uh, in G movies, you hardly ever see any of it. PG, it's rarely present except for smoking, and it's often limited to bad guys. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting, interesting line that they draw. Um, and then PG, if it'll be PG 13 if there's any prominent drug use. And then it gets to R if you're talking about drug use themes or pervasiveness. Right. Um, nudity and sexual content. There's brief nudity allowed in PG movies, but anything more will garner a PG 13 or R. And so you were talking about with your mom, like this doesn't line up with, with her thoughts on this at all. Right. And so if, <laughs> if, if a, a movie's PG 13 largely for nudity and sexual content, then your mom's probably not going to agree with that rating. Yeah. Um, so PG can have brief non-sexual nudity. Um, PG 13 actually is supposed to be non-sexual nudity. And then if you have any extended or sexual nudity, it's going to jump to R. Right. Um, and so those categories are, you know, you can have a PG-13 movie that has no nudity or sexual content, no drugs, but it has, you know, significant language and, and you know, intense violence. That's usually what you see in Marvel movies. Right. Um, where there's a lot of comic book violence, it's not realistic, you're not seeing, you know, bloody swords stick out of people and what have you. But, you know, there's low-level cursing that, you know, Steve chastises and you, yeah. you go from there. <laughs> Language. <laughs> um, and, but that's actually, I think, a pretty good um, example of limited justifiable cursing. Right. Uh, you'll, the cursing in Marvel movies is quite often exclamations in the middle of fights or uh, in reaction to something. Right. It's rarely um, like as a an expression of anger. It's rarely like one person showing anger towards another, like cursing out another person or something right. like that. You're you're not seeing people curse in their normal dialogue. You're seeing it as as you know something happens and so somebody curses. Um, what the hell all over the place? That type of stuff. Right. Um, and so the PG thirteen question for me is PG-13 is such a broad category of movies. Right. And one of the things that's really, that's also interesting here is PG-13 has long been considered to be gold. You don't want to be R. If you're PG-13, then your movie is going to make a lot more money than if it's R. And so major studios will quite often walk right up to the line of R and sometimes actually cut little things, little things, little things to get under that line. And so even though it's a large spectrum, you actually have a cluster of movies right up by almost R. Yeah. But then one you my, also... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna, one of my favorite examples of this where I think the movie really suffers, although this movie suffers from a lot of problems, but is um, Suicide Squad. Where mm-hmm. Su- Suicide Squad was a movie... A, Based on a comic book that was very explicitly an adult's comic book line um, where they dealt with very adult themes, but they wanted it to be PG-13. So they cut out a lot of things that made the characters make sense. I mean, there's a ton of problems in that movie, but but I know from everything I've, uh, I've, I've read a lot about it that it was shot as an R movie and then cut to be PG-13 yeah. um, in well, a lot of the ways that you're <laughs> talking about. Where it was, okay, exactly how can we just slip under that line? 
yeah, okay, so we'll make this head explode, but it'll be a little bubbly thing instead of, you know, yeah, how do we make this cartoony violence or comic book violence rather than gory violence? How do we, right. you know, how many times can we swear? How can, like, do we need to cut this out? You know, how about this character? Do we need to basically, like, pretend they're not really there? Uh, you know, that type of stuff. Um but yeah, that that's definitely a good example of the we're going to walk right up to the line because we don't want R. And so that PG-13 Suicide Squad is something where there's a lot of stuff that I'm a little bit concerned about. Uh-huh. All, kind of all over that movie as opposed to, you know, take a pick a Marvel movie where it's it's pretty solidly PG-13 by these definitions, but it's doing stuff that I'm not as concerned about right yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and i i think part of what it would help me understand is that these ratings are, are really pretty arbitrary and that to just say as a parent you know i'm going to allow this rating but not this doesn't make much sense um in part i mean one of the things i was thinking of is that how much these ratings have changed like mm-hmm. you mentioned that um in uh pg movies it's almost always only the bad guys who smoke yep. um that was definitely – I mean I, I can think of a ton of movies from the 80s and probably even 90s mm-hmm. where the good guys smoke all the time. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I think yeah. it's just um, – and we talked there about violence and how you're going to get around it. In the same way, it feels like there's now an ability – I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but I think it, for the parents who are on the opposite end of like where my mother was, for example, would be very bothered. Um, because sexuality is now so often defined as nudity, um, mm-hmm. a lot of PG-13 and especially on a lot of television – People are really able to find, like, how can you make a scene incredibly erotic, incredibly sensual, but mm-hmm. because you never quite show a nipple or, you know, it, it's the, the person's wearing a thong instead of just having a naked butt, you know, that 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 it, it doesn't quite cross that line. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a good part of the discussion because it gets into the, the idea covers that, are just so. <laughs> yeah. Trying to draw these incredibly arbitrary lines, at least what I think you're saying is that 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 doesn't help you as a parent because it actually you need to go a lot deeper. Well, the biggest thing here for me is that they have four criteria and because of any one of them, you can fall into a higher uh, category. Right. And so if, if you were going to do this in a way that was particularly useful to parents, you would say this is PG-13 for violence. This is PG for language. This is R for drug use themes and this is G for nudity and sexual content. Like right. you'd have to have four different ratings if you wanted to actually have this be a, a, a an effective system for I'm going to blindly be able to say what whether or not I'm okay with this. Right. And so you know it's obviously simplified because you need a simple system and it it works okay. But I think that PG-13 is the one that really, really is just such a large category that it's hard. Like, yeah. You're going to, you know, G movies and PG movies, you're going to pretty comfortably be able to take almost all kids to. R movies, you're going to pretty comfortably be able to say this is not for kids. And then PG-13, I feel like, is just a huge basket that you've got to go into and dig into the specific media that you're wanting to share. Uh, you very helpfully typed out, and we're going to post it uh, on the website uh, and in the show notes, but a description of the, the ratings of each Harry Potter movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And one thing I I, uh, I thought was really interesting is, you know, it, it, before I looked at this list, I would have thought the earlier Harry Potter movies, which are much more like kids' books, are PG. Mm-hmm. And that the later Harry Potter books are more YA, and so those are PG-13. Yep. And, and the list mostly holds to that, except Harry Potter, Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which, you know— among other things, includes the death. Give me spoilers for something twenty years old. Um, it includes the death of a major character. Goes back to PG, whereas the rest of the movies in that second half are, are PG thirteen. Um, yep. And to me, that's just so interesting about how I doubt anyone was like, "No, we got to make this one PG." It just the way the movies got made. Mm-hmm. And it's in it's interesting to see that progression. And you know, honestly, you know, I've made it through Sorcerer's Stone. That's the only one that the kids have seen. Yeah. Um, Chamber of Secrets gets into some pretty scary things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I almost would have guessed that it jumped to PG-13 there. Yeah. Um, I think Prisoner of Azkaban a little bit less so, but there's still some scary stuff. I love Gary Oldman, but uh, he he is <laughs> – he can be very frightening. Yeah. He's uh, <laughs> very good and at that. Then, and then, yeah, we start getting into a lot of – important people dying in the next few movies. And that's, you know, I think that's probably where you kind of see things jump up a lot. And you also see just the kids growing up a bit. more. So um, I wanted, go go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, one thing that's also puts me in mind of is, um, have you ever heard of the comics code? Yes. Yeah. So this is something that happily is, has been pretty much ignored for the last 20 years or so. But for a while, there was literally a code that the comic books were supposed to follow, and they had very strict moral rules, and a lot of them weren't even just about the content that you could show in a comic book, mm-hmm. but a lot of it was about the moral character that, you know, that, like, there were a lot of things that only a bad guy could do, and that you could yeah. never show, you know, a hero questioning a cop, for example, or, um, you know, a hero making a moral mistake. Um, I know that a lot of... Um, a lot of the idea of like the heroes never kill comes mm-hmm. out of that. And in a character like Batman, I think has become a very important part of his character, but also leads to the kind of thing that we've talked about on the show a bunch of times before, you know, where daredevil promises to never kill anyone. He just hits them hard in the head with a metal pipe all the time, um, <laughs> yeah. which is not the most I'll realistic. Just, I'll just cause traumatic brain injuries. Yeah. No chance of anyone dying from that. <clears throat> um, but yeah, it, it, to me, it's, it's another example of, of the kind of rating systems you can get, but also how it's still like, you know, Frank Miller does not follow the comics code by any means, mm-hmm. but that the, a lot of those ideas are still very present, especially in our comic book media, like the movies and TV shows we get from them today. Well, I think that the comic code is actually a really interesting thing because of its origins. And, you know, it's similar to video game ratings where you had the industry itself sit down and say, look, we've got to come up with something that is going to keep government from doing this for us. Right. And so I think the comic code was a, it's, it's an archaic thing from another time, but it was what they thought they had to do in order to not have government step in and say, look, you can't do these things. Right. And, and so it was, while it became self-censorship, it started off as a way to avoid censorship. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. and so it's a lot. A lot of times, you'll see that in uh, in industries where they're getting a lot of attention 
neg negative media attention, earned or not, they'll sit down and say, okay, how do we regulate ourselves so that someone else doesn't come in here and set the rules for us? And I think those are the types of things that really need to be continuously examined. And you know, you see it with the ratings where what we're talking about here with smoking is just, it's different from what it was. Yeah. And so you see an evolution of morality and an evolution of priorities that is necessary if you're going to have a rating system kind of keep up. But it's also really important to remember that what they say today is not what was applied 15, 20 years ago. Right. And so you look at a PG movie from 20 years ago, you're going to see a different movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that goes for like things like smoking, but also goes for things like, you know, content that was much more accepted that today we see as very racist or very sexist, you know, mm -hmm. would, would often be more PG-13 or something like that. Um, yeah. And it doesn't justify that content existing, but it's important to remember that it existed in a different framework. And I, th I think this whole conversation also really puts an important framework on what you are doing as a parent, because you as a parent, like very actively watching these things through your kids, being very thoughtful, you know, understanding that it's not just all easy boxes of this all is easy, this all this all is okay for kids, this all isn't, like that that that's clearly should be the goal. Um, but then also recognizing like a lot of parents just don't have that ability, you know, in terms of just time or, or mm -hmm. other limiting factors. And so I think it's both very easy to sort of disparage rating systems like this, but also to understand that um, that there is some some need for, for those parents who don't have the ability to kind of watch everything with their kids to still understand, like, if I don't have the time to watch it beforehand, how do I know what is or isn't out there? Uh, what is yeah, or isn't absolutely. acceptable? And, and, think, and it's a, it's a so, useful shorthand. Yeah. Uh, it's just – you want to recognize where those limitations are. And that's why, that's why I focus on PG 13. Cause I think the other three ratings are kind of very clear when you're yeah. dealing with kids as to, as to what they are. Um, PG 13 just is such a, <laughs> it's a catch all. Uh, and I think you've said that there's some other things out there that aren't the movie ratings, but that go more in depth of like mm -hmm. letting parents know what content is or isn't a movie. Yeah. And so one of the, a good resource that uh, that I've found for kind of looking into specific movies is uh, commonsensemedia.org. Okay. Um, and it it has kind of brief reviews. It has user ratings, both from parents and from kids. Uh, and it also covers seven topics for each piece of media with a short blurb. And uh -huh. so it talks about positive messages, positive role models, violence, sex, language, consumerism, drinking, drugs, and smoking. And I have found that this site is significantly more conservative than I am in terms of its evaluation of those things. Right. But the information that it presents is accurate. It will give you a good description of what is in the movie, uh, even if its evaluation of what that means is not in line with your values. Uh, it can still give you a good synopsis snapshot of what you are looking at it'll tell you you know uh in this movie a main character uh is killed or a main character makes uh a bad moral decision uh that has consequences or right um, you know it it'll say you know there's one scene of uh brief nudity and implied sex 
or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, you can then decide what that means in terms of your evaluation. Um, and you don't have to look at their, <laughs> their number ratings that go along with it. Um, like, like in terms of what you said about the moral values, I, I'm guessing you mean the kind of thing where it might say this shows two men kissing and that's a problem. And, and someone else might read it and go, okay, well, that's not a problem for me, but at least now I know that. So Is that the kind of thing usually, you mean? You know, it, it will note that there are there's a same sex kiss. Uh, it will note that there is, you know, heterosexual kissing. It, and then it gives kind of a zero to five rating for things like how present they are, basically. Uh-huh. Um, and so it, it mostly the issues that I have seen where I don't line up with them has mo- have mostly come on positive messages or positive role models. Mm. Some things I think I'm in line with, with most people that like, Hey, you should be truthful and, you know, good to people and what have you. But you now then there's other things about, you know, is it a positive message that, um, that you should be yourself and that it is important to support your friends, uh, regardless of their their choices you know right. who knows so there, there's a bunch of stuff where there's moral judgments to be made and you may not line up with where they are right but the the kind of here's what happens is presented very pretty cleanly as here's what happens which right. lets you then go and make that decision yeah and i can see how that would be helpful and, and that it's good that they you know, because I, I know I've seen other sites where they they will be more general. They just say, like, this has terrible messages for kids. And you realize it's because, like, you know, it has a teenage girl who asks her mom about birth control. And someone else might be like, no, that's not that's not terrible at all. Yeah, um, I mean, Juno might be an example where, mm. you know, the decisions trees that are made and the things that are talked about are all pretty challenging. Right. And your evaluation of what that means and whether or not it's a a positive message may not line up. Yeah. So, and let's talk then about some of the, um, the stuff that you might find problematic. Um, what, what, what are examples of stuff where you think that there is, where some of the messaging might not be the best and you, you do want to talk to your kids about that. Um, uh, like how, how do you deal with stuff that, as you said, like can have some really good parts, but also some, some problematic parts. Mm-hmm. And least, especially you know, as you understand problematic. Even even in in good media, you're going to have characters that you can engage about about negative things that they did. Yep. Um, you know, you're always going to have villains or antagonists or you know how however it's framed, where people are making or animals are making <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, negative decisions or or uh, acting in a way that you don't want your kids to to copy. Engaging your kids and giving them the opportunity to pull out the lessons of this villain was bad because X, Y, and Z. And, you know, that's, that's where you start getting into, you know, a little more trouble when you get to a Magneto, uh, or some of the other kind of justifiable villains where they have a worldview that once you accept that worldview, their actions become justified. And that's a, a good conversation to have about, you know, okay, so he believes this. Do you believe that? You know, what do you think is 
is hard about that? And do you think that there are things that he's talking about that are important? Mm -hmm. Okay. How would you address them? How do you, how do you think that we should handle those situations and handle, you know, the problems that, you know, the villain sees, how would you solve them? I love that because for me, some of my favorite of the movies are ones where what I referred to on the show before is when the villain has a point, you know, Magneto's mm-hmm. a great example. Another one of my favorites is um, uh, Eric Killmonger from uh, uh, Black um, Panther. Black Panther, yes, thank you. Um, where part of my, you know, I watch Black Panther, and what I see is a character who has very important critiques of the society, and that by the end of the movie, like to some extent, T'Challa is agreeing that Killmonger was right about some things and is doing some of the things that Killmonger would have wanted, but just that you're Killmonger not wrong, has... but villains. Say again. You're not wrong, but villains. Right, exactly. And but where it's like it's the method that Killmonger is using, and and I think there's a great lesson there about um you know how can you sort of understand someone else's point of view and say not just well you're the villain so everything you say is wrong, mm-hmm. but really make it a lot more complex than that. So yeah, I I love hearing about that. Um, can can you give an example of one where um you thought there was problematic content or a character who. A movie is showing in a positive light, but you don't see it as positive light or, or something like that where you wanted to talk to your kids more about like, OK, well, the movie was saying this, but maybe we might disagree with it or, or feel differently. Uh, so I think that there are good examples from Harry Potter mm. um, in the first book. Um, a lot of people are are so deep into the series that they see the trio as always together. Yeah. And there's some some very problematic behavior by Harry and Ron towards Hermione in the beginning of the book. And they kind of cross a threshold where it goes away after they fight the troll in the bathroom. But Hermione is presented as annoying and a know-it-all. And Harry and Ron are not kind to her through the the start of the book and through the start of the movie and their behavior is something that I think you can engage about. And especially with the lesson of, you know, how good friends they become, right? You know, let's talk about how they treated her early in the movie or, you know, as you're reading through, you know, in this chapter of the book, you know, they decided to go and help her even though they were not treating her well, do you think that this could have been avoided? You know, how would, how would you feel if you were Hermione? How would you, you know, if you were Harry or Ron in this situation, what would you do different? Right. And focusing on kind of giving them the, you know, choose your own adventure off of you saw what happened when they did this, what would you have done instead, I think, is a really good way to uh, kind of get the kids thinking about what they would do and how they would engage about things. I, I love that idea of the choose your own adventure as, as a way to engage. And it, it, I, I, that's a great example you picked because that's one where I, I was an adult when I read those books for the first time, but I was much less sort of aware of a lot of the things that I am now. And I probably watched them kind of, um, you know, just kind of breezing through them. And then about maybe two or three years ago, I decided to go back and reread all the books from the beginning, which I hadn't done in many years. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that, that his first couple of chapters and I was like, wow, 
Harry and Ron are really misogynistic little bastards. Like, <laughs> like I, they're, ah, oh, yeah, they're not, they're not kind in any way. Yeah, and yeah, and it's great that you're able to kind of show that to your kids in that way. Um, one I know, especially that I wanted to dive into because one I've heard um, many parents of of young girls talk about, and especially fathers though. Um, what I refer to as the princess problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and There's so, actually yeah, a book with that title. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that. In terms of like princesses or, or, or other tropes, but especially that one, like how you, there's been so much discussion about both the the very sort of problematic aspect of the Disney princess and all the kind of sexism that goes into a lot of it, but also the, the more empowering aspects and, and the more positive aspects, especially in more recent movies with characters like Elsa. Um what, what what's your kind of approach to to for lack of a better word the princess problem? So I'm I'm going to have a slightly different view on this because I think that both Elsa and Anna are terrible examples. Um, okay. Less so in Frozen Two, less so in Frozen Two, but in Frozen One, I I would not want Elsa or Anna emulated. Mm, um, okay. Elsa's response to anything challenging is to run away, and Anna's response is to take full emotional responsibility and then do something stupid. Um, and so a very I, different view of the mind, but uh, okay, I can understand. Um, and, but I, I actually think that this problem has not, not minimized, but it's shifted pretty significantly recently. Hmm. Um, with the, um, I, I guess I'll call it the Disney Renaissance of, you know, Little Mermaid into Beauty and the Beast and right. Aladdin. Um, you actually saw a much more active princess than you had before with the Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. Right. Um, now, it shifted. It didn't move far enough. And you've you've seen kind of some further development of it with characters like Merida and Brave. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, and also, you know, Elsa and Anna are are much more protagonists than we saw early on, right. um, rather than being more passive. But I think one of the inherent issues with the princess problem is that you're almost always operating with a character who has enormous amounts of... Um, privilege or lack yes, of agency? that's or... the word that I was looking for. <laughs> enormous amounts of privilege. And the problems that that happen to somebody in that uh, in that situation are just different. And right. so you you have characters who their issues have to be either huge or self-made or you know imposed by some you know crazy villain uh, in uh, entangled. Yeah, um, and. So it's a very strange conceit that if you're identifying with it, it's it's kind of carrying along a lot of that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for me, one of the questions that I that I ask a lot, and you, as you've noticed, I ask a lot of questions, is you know who is your favorite princess, and then more importantly, why. What yeah. do you admire about them? What do you think is, you know, something that you would want to do and you would want to be like? And you're not looking, you're trying to 
see what your kids are taking away from those movies. Right. And if it's, I, you know, oh, it's Elsa because I want to be able to control ice, then honestly, I think that's probably fairly benign. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I, I like Cyclops because I'd like to be able to, you know, have eye blasts and Lasers come out of my blow eyes, things yeah. up. Yeah, like that's, you know, again... You know, it's just kind of a fantasy. But if it's, right. you know, but, oh, I really like Belle because she likes to read. Right. You know, I really enjoy Merida because she is active in trying to solve the problem and she wants to be her own person. Right. But she also, you know, takes responsibility at the end and she protects her mother. And, you know, what are the things that you see in the characters that you admire? And right. you, if you can engage about that and kind of direct it and, and, you know, focus them on the things that are admirable about the characters. Because I think when we talk about the princess problem, it's really easy to just discount all the characters. And I don't think that's, that's reasonable. No. And I appreciate that because I think it's, um, you know, I think especially with the older Disney movies, like you know your Cinderellas and your Snow Whites, it's it's mm-hmm. th- there is a very important critique there of the, you know, because I was imagining like if someone would pick Cinderella, at, you know, or or one of those where it's the, you know, what I want is because what what this shows me is that you know a handsome prince will come and rescue me and and make everything mm-hmm. okay. That that's obviously a really problematic message, but that that even in some of those earlier movies, there still is a lot of of agency that you often have, and that. As these movies go on, the Disney movies that you have so much more of that and so many different ideas of, you know, what does it mean to be a princess, and that you can have both someone who is very much embodying the princess trope, but in a more positive way, or someone like a Merida who very much does not want that. Um, yeah. And I, I can see that, yeah, that that can be a great conversation to have with kids. Um, you know, I, I will say, and, and uh, um, maybe we'll get you back on for a different episode about Frozen because I can tell there's a lot of, um, <laughs> we'll probably have a lot of differences there. But to me, I think. One of the things that I remember being super powerful about that was the idea that it it turned a lot of that um, the traditional Disney romance on its head, where both the dashing prince figure was shown to be kind of a dork, but also that the primary love story is really about the love between two sisters, not necessarily you know between uh, the princess and and a, and a handsome guy. Although there is that there is a romance subplot, but it's mm-hmm. really a subplot to the relationship between the sisters. Yeah, uh, I. I think it's hurt by the fact that they decided to change things up halfway through the movie, mm. but it's uh, ah, that's that's for another time. <laughs> we'll uh, for I also I also want to point out that it's also important to ask about least favorite princesses, mm, yeah, and you know, and why that is. You know, what are the things that you see in in these leading characters who are supposed to be your protagonists that you don't like and that you are worried about and that you think don't work out well or I don't like that she's not kind to this person or something. Yeah. Um so figuring out, you know, if that can give you a lot of insight as well as, you know, kind of going into that choose your own adventure mode of, well, okay, you don't like that. What could she have done differently? Right. I can understand um, that. Now, I think that it's also important to make sure that you're presenting characters that kind of break this mm-hmm. mold and that play outside of the princess. Um, so 
a couple of them that I just kind of wrote down is Peg from Peg Plus Cat. Okay. Uh, you know, it's a very kids show. Uh, it's, you know, educational. It's problem solving based and stuff like that. But she is definitely the center of the show and works really hard to solve problems and gets to do all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, Doc McStuffins is uh, an, a toy doctor and spends time fixing toys and, uh, you know, obviously not a, <laughs> um, not a princess at all. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I really like about that family is that uh, the, the mom is a doctor in the mm. family. Uh, and uh, so the dad's actually around a lot. Oh, that's really nice to have that, that flip. Uh, she's also uh, a person of color. And so another thing that I think is important is presenting media that doesn't just reflect your kids. Right. Um, now, they should see themselves in, in the media that they're seeing, but they should see other people too. Um, I think that Katara from Avatar The Last Airbender is a really good example of a character that... Uh, especially from the storyline, she grows over the course of the story and becomes a very strong character in her own right and has, has a, a, a storyline and a, an arc that is independent of, uh, of the other characters. Yeah. Well, and one thing I like particularly about Avatar The Last Airbender in this perspective is uh, it seems like a lot of media, especially more YA or kids media, you often get into, um, you know, there is one strong woman character in a in a group of guys. And mm-hmm. so that's often a great character, but she's meant to be kind of the stand-in of all women uh, or mm-hmm. of all girls. Whereas in, in Last Airbender, you have both Katara and Toph, um, as well as a number of other female characters who get introduced both as heroes, villains, anti-heroes, and folks who are somewhere in the middle. Yep. So that, you know... There isn't just the one to look up to, but it's very possible for someone to say, okay, well, I'm not as much a Katara. This other character is more who I relate to. Um, yeah, and Suki like as well. Thing. Um, you, you have a number of, um, of side characters that uh, also display a ton of strength and, and are important to the, to the storyline. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are the there, dragon... Are, go ahead. Sorry, the dragon prince has two characters that I really enjoy as, as females. Um, uh, as female role models. Rayla is the main character. Uh, she's an elf assassin that winds up aligned with our main characters. Right. And then uh, Amaya is actually the uh, the king's sister-in-law mm-hmm. uh, and the general of uh, the army. And she's deaf and uses sign language. Mm. And so you have a very strong martial character that uh, you see engage with a number of different people over the course of the series and um, they don't soft pedal the sign language at all. There's not captions. There's not anything. You have to follow it from context clues. If you don't know sign language, if you do know sign language, the sign language is apparently very accurate. Um, and that's one of the things where I really, I felt that Dragon Prince has been as good as I've seen at doing representation of different 
races, different abilities, different. Uh, yeah. What, one of the things that first pulled me in actually about uh, Dragon Prince was, um, uh, and I want to be very careful here about language, the, the deaf community is not considered uh, part of the disabled community. It's considered a, a separate thing by the deaf community. And, and I very much want to respect that. But, it, but I also think that there's a lot of ways in which deafness is, I think disability adjacent might be a fair term. And that certainly there's a, a, a lot of overlap. And that certainly in a lot of the conversations, I, I am myself disabled, many our audience knows, um, uh, mobility wise. And that within a lot of the deaf community, within a lot of the disabled community, as well as the deaf community, there's a lot of discussion of Dragon Prince as being far and away one of the best examples of that, particularly because it does not fall into the trope that so often happens of the character who has a, a, a physical thing that is different, but uses magic to make it go away. Like that we have this very magic heavy society, mm-hmm. but that still that character uses sign language, not something else to, to, um, to, to, to interact with the world. Well, one of the things that I think is, I don't think you see very many deaf characters on TV. Agreed. And when you do, it is treated as something special. Like, hey, look at us. We've done this great thing. And I think one of the things that I really like about Dragon Prince is this is just a character. Yeah. And... You know, that happens with a lot of characters that have something different about them. Um, and, you know, this is a character, they're important, and you can't understand what they say, which is something that I want you to recognize. Yeah. Like, I, I want you to recognize that you don't have this skill and that maybe you could learn this skill. You know, hey, I'd really like to understand what am I saying is something that I'd love to hear my kids say. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, another show that I love uh, is West Wing and the character of Joey Lucas uh, is uh, a deaf character who is a pollster that works with the White House on a number of occasions played by, uh, I think it's Marley Matlin. Yep. Who, the actress and, herself is deaf. Yep. And, you know, again, I think that's a really good representation because you have someone who is from that community who is playing that character. And uh, in that case, they work with an interpreter who speaks for her. But, um, you know, that character has all kinds of storylines and is really uh, an important part of the show. And yeah. that's, you know, that's something that's important to see. Definitely. I, I there was a story I, I... West Wing I'm also a huge fan of and I've, I've read a lot about. And, and one of my favorite stories about it is that the the person who plays her interpreter, they, they, they both make a couple of jokes about about it on the show, both in terms of like, you know, at one point she attends a, what is thought to be a high security meeting where they realize no one has done any mm-hmm. you know, vetting of the interpreter. They don't even know his Does last name. Does anyone know Kenny's last name? Yeah. But, but then on the flip side, the actress was very clear about wanting to make sure that it was an accurate portrayal of translation. So that, for example, it used to be that the actor playing the the interpreter, who was a sign language interpreter himself, but also an actor, mm-hmm. that he would get the script. And so he would start interpreting based on the script and that the actress was actually getting upset. And, and what, what she wound up saying was that she didn't want him to see the script so that he was literally translating what the actress was doing instead of like reading the lines that were mm-hmm. the interpretation. Um, yeah. and I just thought that was such a great little moment. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's the kind of thing. That's a great thing to talk to kids about because it lets them, 
you know, see more into that world of something that can seem strange and alien. Um, yeah. One thing I've always appreciated from, I, I mentioned my disability, I'm someone who has a prosthetic leg. And a lot of times I'm, I'm in a wheelchair, I don't have a leg. And I will often get from adults a, you know, they might seem uncomfortable and they might seem like they want to ask, but they're they're clearly like, they'll kind of just like steal, you know, furtive glances. Where a kid will just stare because they see like, I don't have a foot. This is strange and new. Um, and, and that can be, you know, uncomfortable at times, but often it's pretty wonderful because it's such a reminder of like, just what that open curiosity about the world is like at a younger age. And it, it sounds like what you're doing is really helping to kind of encourage that and let that grow while also not letting it be go randomly explore, but let me help you explore and let me help answer the questions that come up for you as you go through life. Yeah. The goal, I think, as a parent working with your kids on, on what they're watching is not to, not to hold tight and try to shape all of it, but to be a resource. And, you know, part of that is here are things that I love and hopefully you will too. Yeah. And part of that is let's talk about this thing that you saw and engage about it. And how do we take lessons away from it? And what do we want out of the media that we watch? Because that's, that I think is something that not enough people think about. Just the question, asking yourself this question, what do I want out of the shows that I watch when I'm sitting down and I've got free time? What do I need back from the TV to feel like it was worth it. Right. Well, um, Jared, this has been a fantastic discussion, but we really uh, should start wrapping up because um, we, we are approaching the... Two I think hours? Actually, what do you think? We, we might be at about the two-hour <laughs> mark, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure that uh, especially the, you know, parents with young kids might not have quite as much time as anyone else to, to dedicate to a, a, a podcast, but I'm hoping it's helpful for, not for parents, but like, you know, for myself as a consumer of media that is always interested in the conversations around media and how it affects kids. This has been a great conversation and I, am someone who will probably become a parent at a later point in my life, but even I wasn't, I think this is a great conversation. And so I'm, I'm really glad you've been a part of this. Are there any kind of last words or kind of closing ideas that we didn't get to touch on that you want to throw out? No, I, I tried to keep it clean. So I think that the kids can listen to this too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. I think I might've had one or two. I, I think this might be a PG 13 for one or two uh, words that I let slip out earlier, but we, um, uh, uh, as long as they were justified, I think we're okay. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, great. So Jared, thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, absolutely. And obviously, um, to all of our listeners and fans, um, Jared is one particular parent. Uh, I'm one particular fan. This is an issue in which I think there's going to be so many different perspectives, so many different disagreements. Um, we'd love to hear what you think. Um, if you're a parent, how are you uh, approaching these issues uh, as a parent in terms of what your kids do or don't see? Um, if you're a younger viewer, I'd love to hear from you especially in terms of uh, you know, what, what you're consuming and how are your parents dealing with that or not dealing with that and, and how, do you, how is that working? Um, do you have memories about when, when you were a kid and what your parents did or didn't uh, watch uh, let you see? Or just for any reason at all, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and email, all at Superhero Ethics, uh, Gmail, and email it's at gmail.com. The rest just Superhero Ethics. Um, be a little careful Googling because there is a book by that same title uh, out that is a very different, very conservative perspective. Um, so uh, be a little careful of that one. But uh, once you find that that one's talking about Captain America as wonderful because it upholds American patriotism, I think you'll know that's not us. Um, but But yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of that. Um, 
there uh, all sorts of great ways to interact because I think both of us think this is we want to use this as a chance to open up the conversation and to hear more from you. Um, Jared, if people want to follow you more, um, are there places where you you do writing or, or, or let your thoughts out out and free in the internet? Uh, I mostly have just guested on some podcasts, but you can find me on Twitter at Jared Silva. Uh, that's J A R E D S Y L V A. Uh, and just before we wrap up, I wanted to mention a couple of the shows that we've been talking about and some of the ones that I've found to be good shows for for my kids yeah, uh, and do. kind of where to find them. Um, Sesame Street's now on HBO. Uh, Daniel Tiger, Wild Kratts, Peg Plus Cat, Word Girl, and Odd Squad are all on PBS Kids, and I find them to be really good kind of focused on the educational uh, side of things. We talked a lot about Dragon Prince, which is on Netflix. I also highly recommend Carmen Sandiego and She-Ra on Netflix. Mm, yeah. And then Rebels and Clone Wars are on Disney+. And Avatar The Last Bender, the last Airbender is available for purchase. It's not on any of the streaming services. Right. Yeah. No, those are all great. And um, in the show notes that we'll have and on the website – Links to all those will be put up. Um, some of those I haven't seen, but Shira especially. Um, we're going to be doing an episode just on Shira at some point in the next couple of months because it is, I, I think, fantastic content that's approaching things that uh, um, haven't really been talked about before. So I'm really looking forward to that. So to our fans, again, please write in. Um, you can support us. We have a Patreon. Uh, we're always happy to get your support, especially at this time when um, uh, things are a little harder than normal. Uh, and I'm trying to get a lot more content out to you. Um, you can also, um, this podcast is part of a larger uh, podcast network called the Stranded Panda Podcast Network, um, where we really have a lot of different media shows that that dive deep into different kinds of media. Um, there's ones about the uh, the MCU, the DC universe, the one that I run about the uh, Star Wars universe, and one I run about Orville. Um, on the Bingers Assemble uh, uh, podcast, we really just kind of do deep dives on specific shows. Myself and Matt Carroll have recently been doing a um, a show specifically about the TV show Altered Carbon which I'm going to say is probably the absolute most non-kid-friendly thing I've ever talked about on the show, <laughs> though I think it is a fantastic, fantastic piece of media. But no, please don't let your kids watch that for a long time. Um, uh, but but yeah, there's, there's lots of great things on the Stranded Panda, Stranded Panda Podcast Network to check out. So um, have a Jared, myself, uh, all the other people who have been hosts. Thank you guys all so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.